It's time to set aside the superficial. It's time to go deeper. It's time to engage in truth. Here's John Bornsheen. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome back to Engage in Truth. This is John Bornsheen. I'm the senior pastor of Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley Church right here in Colorado Springs. I'm thrilled that you're tuning in today. We are beginning a new study. Over this week and next, we are in preparation for Resurrection Sunday. That's right. It's going to be here before you know it. And we don't want this just to be another day or a tradition or just something. uh, Perhaps it's on your calendar where you get together and you break bread over a meal or maybe even go find some Easter eggs. We like to call Resurrection Sunday because this day is so important. It was a fulfillment of 355 prophecies over this next week. Think about it. Almost 2,000 years ago in which the Lord Jesus came and he fulfills four different holy feasts in that one week period of time. And and I'll say the fourth because it's the beginning of the Feast of Weeks. But during that time, he'll fulfill Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, Feast of First Fruits, and yes, even with the coming of the Holy Spirit, the Feast of Weeks. All of that perfectly orchestrated by God. And so we dare not take this coming week lightly. So we want to highlight for you what happens the week of before the Lord Jesus goes to the cross, is crucified for all of us for our sins, to be the redemption for mankind, the salvation, the Messiah, the hope. Before he does all of that, what happens this particular week? And so we're going to take you a little bit here into Matthew chapter 21. And to help me do that, back in the studio with me, Dr. Steve Ford. Welcome back to Engage in Truth. Thank you, John. This is so great and so appropriate as we head into Easter week and and listening to you talk. All I could think of was Maranatha, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, (laughs) come. We're celebrating the first time. We're so anticipating the second time. And uh, I think this is going to be great today. I think people are really going to be blessed by what you have to discuss today. Amen. Amen. And of course, before we get into this study, my heart has been heavy uh, because here we are in Ramadan. Now, for those Muslims all across the world, those who may even be listening to this broadcast right now, my heart is heavy for people who are caught up in the lie of Islam as they worship a false god, uh, appealing to him for acceptance, hoping for their family and their, their generations to follow that they have received favor in the eyes of their false God who speaks not of love, nor gives them any assurance of love or that they are uh, fulfilling some purpose. They are just simply expendable. They're a casualty of war and, and they're caught up in lies and deception. And what we praise God for are all of the Muslims who are dreaming dreams of the Messiah. He Amen. is disturbing their hearts. We have churches we work with even in the West Bank. And people are coming in from great dreams that they're having in the Messiah, willing to leave their entire culture behind with this truth that is before them, that Jesus has come to them, and they want the truth of the true Isa al-Masih. And so here we have Ramadan that began April 2nd, goes all the way through May 1st. Our hearts have been heavy because this is typically a time of great violence. Last year alone, there were 222 recorded terror attacks during Ramadan that resulted in 1,103 deaths. And this year especially, the Muslims seem to be incited to more violence because they have believed this particular lie that says that by July 8th of this year, Israel as we know it will cease and it will become a Muslim state. 
and they use some numerology and some of the texts that have been given to them. And, and so they're buying even more lies that are causing them to wreak even further havoc in taking of innocent blood. And so, Dr. Ford, before we begin our program talking about the this the wonderful sequence of events that occur here in Matthew chapter 21 of the final week before the Lord Jesus goes to the cross and will ultimately defeat death for all of us, as we're talking about this hope in Jesus Christ, would you pray for the peace of Jerusalem, uh, for, for protection over Israel, and even those in the West who... Uh, stand with Israel. Would you Would you pray for us all, I pray? <laughs> yeah, I'd love to. Thank you, John. Thank you. Kind and gracious Heavenly Father, I just thank you for this opportunity to come before you together as your children. And we, we're, we know that we should pray for the peace of Jerusalem and the peace of Israel, and that Israel is the apple of your eye. It's so clear in Scripture. It's also so clear in Scripture that Israel will not cease to be a nation, and, mm. uh, and that Israel will be a nation at your, at your coming and will continue forth. And we just... We lift up this area of the world, Heavenly Father, so many people involved, so much anger, so much hate, so much that grieves you, but we just pray for your spirit of peace and protection for the nation of Israel. We pray for the Jews. We pray for the Muslims. We pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are all caught up in this area. Instead of being a record-breaking year of violence and of death, maybe a record-breaking year of peace and justice and love and mercy between all the parties involved that can only be brought about by the power of your Holy Spirit. We lift this area up in the world, and we lift all this. John said, all those who support the nation of Israel and love the nation of Israel because of our love for you, we lift them up for protection as well. We pray for those who have not accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior, even through dreams and visions, as, as John was speaking about with the Muslims, that any way possible we know that you would want all come to saving faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. And we lift them up for your blessing and your protection. In mm. Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Dr. Ford, for that. And uh, so as I mentioned before, we had studied at Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley. We began our study in Matthew chapter 21 here recently. And just a couple weeks ago, we were talking about the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ into Jerusalem. He departs from Jericho. There's a, a procession of people with him. He's done amazing, miraculous works in Jericho. He stayed in Bethany. Lazarus had been raised from the dead. He's made that 15-mile journey into Jerusalem. He's now riding on a donkey, coming through as prophesied in the 483rd week of, of the, the prophesied, or 483rd year, I should say, of Daniel as he saw these, these 490 years. And, and this 483rd year, the perfect timing of the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ into Jerusalem, the declared king is before them. This huge crowd is going. They're shouting praises. Listen to verse 9, Matthew 21, 9. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. I don't think we could stop saying that. I think we should all say that over and over again. Amen. They're shouting praises. Now, what Mark 11 tells us is that the the crowd disperses, Jesus departs, goes back to Bethany, comes back the next day, and he goes into the temple of God. Now, that's the setting here. And so you've got to understand that at this particular time, as they were getting everybody that is gathering into Jerusalem because they're all getting ready for Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, ultimately Feast of First Fruits as well. But during this very holy time of season and demanding time, the people were instructed by oral law and tradition to come back to Jerusalem, and they had to be in Jerusalem proper. 
They couldn't just be near Jerusalem. So a city that was normally in population of around 55,000 swells to over 180,000 people. It becomes so big, they redraw the lines around Jerusalem to include the villages of Bethphage and even Bethany and all the surrounding villages so that people are truly in the city limits of Jerusalem. So you imagine people are coming far and wide, all the pilgrims. You've got people filling every inn, every home, every street. There's tents everywhere, little fires, animals all over the place, children, families. It's loud. It's busy. It's hopping. And the temple is the center of it all. And it's here where Jesus's triumphal entry takes him right up to it. They come back the next day and this sequence of events occurs. Let me read it to you, Matthew 21, 12 to 17. Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things he did and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise. Then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and he lodged there. Now what you see here is this amazing display of the authority of Jesus Christ. And I know we only have a few minutes, Dr. Ford, so I'm going to try to summarize what took me about 45 minutes on a Sunday. (laughs) And I love to hear your comments on this too. But there's at least five statements of the authority that's on display here. And I've often wondered why this particular sequence of events. I mean, with the Lord Jesus' mission before him that would cause him great anguish, I mean, to where he's he's praying and, and asking even if God would make this cup pass from him, if, if it can be, uh, to where the blood is coming out of his forehead. There are these at least deep droplets of sweat likened unto blood coming from his forehead. This is his deep anguish of the mission that is before him to take on the full cup of the wrath of God that will be poured out on him for the sins of all, especially those who would call on the name of the Lord You think about the billions of Christians who have called on the name of the Lord, and he carried all the sin for all of them. You would think with that mission before him, why go to the temple of God and start flipping tables? Why go in there and deal with the money changers and knocking the cages of doves down on the ground again? This is the second time, after all, that he's had to do this. And you see right away that this is a divine mission. He's going to his own turf. He is God in flesh. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So he's not going to just any temple. He's going to the temple of God. It specifically states that in verse 12, which is very unique because of all the times that the temple is mentioned, it never seems to have to include of God in here, but it needs to set the record straight here. This space, this hieron, this naos belongs to God, and you have treated it like a den of thieves. You have polluted it. You have made it worldly. You've corrupted every square inch of this place. And the Lord is going in there to demonstrate God's holiness and his wrath against sin. Very symbolic of what he was about to do on the cross to take the punishment of this sin that here they are living in 
and sin as they're they're coming in this posture of religiosity and God is not the center of it. It's a man-made system at this point that sounds very faithful and yet it's immoral. And so we see that they tried to make Jesus their king in John chapter 6, verse 15. They tried to force him. They wanted liberation from Rome. Uh, But if he was going to be that version of the Messiah that they were seeking, he would have taken them to Fort Antonia. He would have led a military coup. He he would have probably even taken them to the governor's mansion to overthrow Pilate. That's not what he does. He's on a mission that is a divine-oriented mission. It's about reconciliation and redemption. It's about salvation. The issue is not with Rome. It's with God. And this is why he goes to the house of God, because judgment begins at the house of God, according to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. And we have to understand here that the measure of any society is the relationship that it has with God. That's, this is the epicenter of everything, according to Psalm thirty-three, twelve. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Worship is the issue. It's always been the issue. Men will never be right with men until men are right with God. And so Jesus's ministry began in a very similar setting. He began there in Jerusalem at the time of Passover, cleansing the temple, according to John chapter 2, when he made a whip of cords and had to drive them out before. And here, three years later, they've gone right back to the same problem. Nero thought that a social order revolved around entertainment and governance. And I can tell you, the listener right now, that nations rise or fall but by what happens at the house of God. That is the epicenter of it all. The Lord will clean up his church. If there, if there is a desire for revival or reform in a society, it begins at the house of God. And so the Lord goes right back to the same setting, has to clean it all up again. After three years, they went right back to their old ways. And you, you almost ask why. If their hearts are so hardened, if the love of the Lord is truly not there, why even bother? Why not allow like James and John, who are the sons of thunder, who wanted to call down fire from heaven and just consume them? I mean, why not just bring a holy judgment right then and there? Why purge it yet again? And he has to show the holy wrath of God against sin, desecration, blasphemy, and false religion. And you have to understand from a Greek, we take one word, temple, and we apply it to all, when in the Greek, there was two words, hieron and naos, and the entire temple area was called the hieron, but the area, the sanctuary of God, where the holy place and the holy of holies was, is the naos. And there's a wonderful image in that because Paul spoke to the body of Christians and he calls them the naos, according to 1 Corinthians 3.16 and 1 Corinthians 6.19. So they are the naos, the place, the holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was. That means they're temples on two legs. And the Lord Jesus is showing that before he goes to the cross here, you have to understand that how you've been worshiping me is totally polluted. It's desecrated. There's no love of me here. And if we're to be the temple on two legs, we have to examine how the temple looked before God at that time. It was a place of money changers. They turned it into a bank, a place of commerce, a place of immorality. It looked and sounded like the world. It was like a stockyard. I mean, when you look at all the different courts that were in the temple area, If they got all the way up with their sacrifice, say they had brought in a lamb that they thought was the right kind of lamb, they'd gone through the court of women, they'd gone through the Nicanor gate, 
They'd gone through the court of the Israelites all the way up to the court of priests to bring their sacrifice up to the priest to put on the altar. And the priest would then say, well, let me examine your sacrifice. They could say, well, I'm sorry, your sacrifice doesn't cut it. You got to go back out to the court of the Gentiles and you got to buy one of our lambs. And out there, they would then mark it up 10 times its price. But it even gets worse because if you didn't have exact change, they would have to make change for you. They would mark that up with a 25% increase. So they were making money off people. If you were a poor person and all you could afford was a dove or a pigeon, and say in today's currency, that'd be about five or 10 cents, it would have been $5 at that time. So they were making money off the poor. They, they, it was a whole sham. The whole thing was a money-making scheme. They actually called the court of Gentiles the Bazaar of Anas because it was just basically turned into a flea market. And then people were cutting through the temple area in order to use it as a shortcut to get to the other side. So they were desecrating this entire area. The Lord goes in there. He starts flipping tables, demonstrating his authority, and not a single person is able to stop him. Not one. I mean, you're talking about the kind of people who would have been upset that their business is now rolling on the ground, right? Their money, their doves, everything. They would have been upset. And yet they're powerless. Not one person dares even lay a finger on Jesus. Not one person tells him to stop. The place is packed and everybody's in shock and awe. By this display, the Lord means business that my house is a mess right now. And this is very, I think, symbolic to all of us. Because as the Lord is going to do a greater work in us to clean up these temples that he's about to occupy, once the Holy Spirit comes, we're now a temple of the Holy Spirit on two legs, and he is not going to tolerate the immorality where we sound and look and act like the world while we profess the name of Jesus. If we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, we are his holy ground walking about on this earth as ambassadors for Jesus Christ. Enough is enough. It is time for the church to act like the church, to be holy, consecrated, set apart. As Joshua had told them, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord is going to do something in your midst. And it is time that we, the believers, act like that. The Lord means it. He is going to start flipping tables in his home if we look like the world. And so I think that when we look at this, we see his, his every single thing that the Lord Jesus said there, he holds accountable to the holy word of God. That's an example to all of us. I mean, he's citing from Isaiah 56, 7. He's citing from Psalms. He's citing from Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11. Every single action he takes, he justifies, holds it accountable to the word of God. So he's on a divine mission with divine authority, with a a commitment here to the divine word. And listen, Dr. Ford, I think this is where it all applies. This is where it comes home. Once all that noise is out of the way, I mean, just for a moment, the temple was clean. For a moment, all of the immorality was ceasing. The abuses were stopping. The pride, the arrogance, all of it stopped. There's silence. They're in awe of the Lord. And then divine compassion happens because in verse 14, it says, then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. He healed them. So, so often, how many times have we treated the Lord like a divine genie where the house of worship is in disorder, and I'm talking about our own vessels, and it's been polluted by the world, we're we're treating God like a divine genie, deal with my financial problems and my physical woes, but I'm not going to clean up the house, I don't want my money changers gone, I don't want my system of the world gone, 
And the Lord Jesus has to come through, clean it up, and then healing can happen. And I'm not talking about just the fact that, you know, we, we dare not say that the Lord isn't in charge of infirmities of the flesh. He certainly is. But I know this for fact, though, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 to 32, when he said, when we take of communion, we dare not take it lightly, that if we examined ourselves, if we judged ourselves, then he would not have to chasten us. If we'd clean up the house, and for this reason, he says, there are many who are sick and sleeping among you, that we can find that sickness and disorder come with disobedience. But even if there is sickness in the houses in order, authentic worship always overpowers the weakness of the flesh. When he is the center focus of it all, everything else falls into proper alignment. And and I think that's where we're to draw away from this, that as he's about to go to the cross in his final week, he's now dealing with the business, the worship that is all polluted. And the whole time, he never even wanted their sacrifice. He wanted their hearts. And that's just not a New Testament teaching. I mean, in 1 Samuel 15, 22, and Psalm 51, 16 and 17, Hosea 6, 6, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 8, all of that says that he wanted hearts that were in allegiance to him, who loved him, who desired him. And yet all they were thinking about was their sacrifices and the money exchange and everything else. They weren't thinking about him at all. In fact, they were worshiping the building and not the Lord that it was built to worship for. I mean, it was all for him. And he was somehow absent from it all. And so now there's God in their midst midst, and they're indignant that the people are worshiping him because they were so in love with their own system. They couldn't find God in the noise. And so here the children get it. And I love this because the imagery there is of even children three years of age or younger. And they want them silenced. And as the Lord was coming into the temple area, when the Pharisees tried to rebuke him, he says, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. You can't silence them, and nor would he <laughs> silence the children. The children in their undefiled worship, they're getting what the priests don't, that he is worthy of praise. And there needs to be a reverential posture once again where the Lord is saying the house has got to be clean, not just this brick and mortar, but you, my people, have got to be clean. I'm going to this cross for you. I'm giving everything for you. I have left my throne in heaven to take on the flesh of man, to be ridiculed and abused and, and, and taking it all, the, 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 the sin and the shame of it all upon his own shoulders. And then we go into this week and we start thinking about Easter bunnies and little plastic eggs. We've missed it. He has got to be the focal point of it all. And I know, Dr. Ford, I took up all of our time and my passion, and, and you know I've been talking for quite some time before the program, but any final thoughts for our listener today? Well, there are just so many things. All I heard uh, as, as you were talking again and again and again was the book of Judges. You mm-hmm. know, we just see that same pattern. Uh, you know, they sort of desecrate the Lord's word, and then they, they come back and they repent, and then, you know, the Lord saves them again, and then we see this, A he has cycle. to come back with another cleansing again, and there's <laughs> just over and over and over again. Uh, but I, I also see in the same way that uh, even Oswald Chambers says, sometimes we can make a God out of our service and they, maybe they're doing these sacrifices and they're more focused on their service. But like you said, God has not changed. Then God wanted their hearts. Today, God wants, he doesn't want our service. Our service comes out of love for him. What he wants is our love. What he wants, like you said, is our hearts. Right. All the rest of those things will be taken care of when he has our hearts and we focus our love and our joy and our eyes on him. Amen. So as you go into this Resurrection Sunday preparation week and you think about Passover, unleavened bread, 
Feast of First Fruits into Feast of Weeks, and ultimately seeing that Jesus came perfectly appointed at just the right time to fulfill every single detail, all 355 prophecies, and yes, even all the prophecies that speak of his second coming, you can be assured, brothers and sisters, that if he came and fulfilled every single one of the first prophecies, he will come as promised to fulfill all of the remaining prophecies of his second coming. And so let us be in a posture of humility, of reverential awe. Let's be the house that we're supposed to be. It's cleaned up, undefiled, unpolluted, ready to truly worship him. Let all the noise of the world be subsided and put all the anxieties aside, all of those stresses laid at the foot of the cross. Worship the true king and be ready. Let your lanterns be full, looking forward to his coming and glorious reign. The days are short and eternity is long. Let us be found faithful in giving the gospel message, living it and speaking it. We love you all. and We thank you for listening here to Engage in Truth. We look forward to being with you again next week. Uh, This is a ministry of Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley Church, and services are 8 a.m. and 10 a.m. on Sundays, and we'd love to see you there. Again, you can learn more at calvaryfountain.com. God bless you, my friends. Take care.